Well, one of the things we have uh, in... Um and taking this season of walking through the Bible together as we're, we're laying a solid foundation that kind of come what may, we know that we know that we know that God is on the move, that God is at play, that God is strong and mighty to save. Um, and so uh, as we jump into this particular, uh, this particular week in light of what you've read in the past couple weeks, uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story. In spring of 1995, uh, when I was in the Air Force, uh, I was disqualified as a... U.S. Air Force Airborne Cryptolinguist Operator. Um, I was, uh, I flew on planes and uh, there had been an incident where something had happened while I was live copying that I missed, something that should have been reported uh, up the chain in that live moment. It was found later on and, and it was, uh, so they came to me and they, um, they said, hey, listen, we're going to disqualify you. I, I can't tell you. Now, I, I was, I felt like I was one of the more naturally gifted and talented Operators, and so, and I also felt like I, I'd been kind of in the kind of fast track promotion concept. I was just about to start training other operators, and so, like, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt, I felt demeaned, and, and honestly, I was angry. And the reason I was angry is because, by the letter of the law, yes, it's true that if you miss something significant in live copy when you're flying and you don't report it, it is grounds for being moved into a, a disqualified place. Thing is, it had never happened in my tenure. Other operators had been either less seasoned or even more seasoned than me. It had missed some things and we caught it later on and we'd reported it later and all was well. And it wasn't fair. How, how, come, how come I was having to be disqualified? How come this was happening to me? This, this doesn't seem just. It didn't seem right. Shameful, and I was angry. I was, I was so ashamed. I didn't even tell Becky about it until years later. I would requalify a couple months later, but God was doing something there that I didn't understand, and I was really, really upset. And all I kept thinking is, "This is not fair. This is not fair. This is not fair." And maybe that's what some of you experienced a little bit as you've been reading through the books of Genesis, Exodus, and maybe now as you hit Leviticus, and particularly in the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. So that when you read Leviticus 10.2 and it says, And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Whew. First thing I want to talk about is the offense of holiness. Holiness has an offense baked into it to our proclivities, to our understanding as, as people. It's not fair. Doesn't this seem harsh to you? I mean, they, they just got their instructions. Like they're just learning. They're in training almost still, right? Here we have what seems like that angry God of the Old Testament showing up. Like, I thought we were trying to not do this. Can we, listen, can we just go back to the New Testament, like where, where Jesus is gentle and kind and, and all is well and, and there's grace everywhere. Can we, go, can we just go there? So they did it wrong. Why so drastic? Isn't there a second chance? We see Moses speak for God, saying in Leviticus chapter 10, 3, he says, God says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu's unholiness had come into contact with God's 
holiness with devastating consequences. This is sobering, maybe even frightening. Holiness in the Bible is the understanding of the, the separateness of God, that God is holy. It, it's, it's, the, it's the summation of what it means for God to be God. It's, his, it's God's amazing power and his, it's his amazing goodness and his, his beauty and it's his justice and it's all that makes up God's God. Makes, all that makes God, God. And so holiness is the separateness. It's the otherness. It's the fact that God is God and we are not. Now the glory of the Lord, which they seem to be synonymous, is really just the holiness of God on display. Right? It's, I think John Piper said that, the, that glory is really holiness that's gone public. And so here we see, right, is that the glory of the Lord enters the tabernacle and fills the tabernacle and Moses can't go in. But Nadab and Abihu will end up going in. And the glory of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord will consume them. I, in prepping for this sermon, like and thinking through this passage, like I'm not blind to what that sounds like to the ears of our world. Like I'm not blind to that. This fickle God who's just suddenly like, you're done. Sounds like Zeus or something. It is not. The holiness of the Lord comes into contact with the unholiness of these two men and they perish. Why is this so disturbing? If it's not disturbing, I don't, you're probably not really thinking it through. It's, it's disturbing. It's unsettling. Why is it unsettling? Because Nadab and Abihu, they're mostly good dudes. There's no indication that they were like bad guys. By all means, they, it seemed like they trusted in the Lord. There's no reason to believe they didn't. But they were grateful and excited about being priests before the Lord. This is the only indictment against them. They had been faithful. They'd gone through all of the process and procedure that God had laid out before them. They were doing, maybe they were doing their best. Okay, they screwed up once, but come on. So their offering was a little off and Maybe they were a little bit, you know, presumptuous before the Lord and they were maybe flippant and disposing with some of the holy things. But what happened, like what happened to the God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, right? Who, who forgives trespasses. Like what, what happened to him? What's happening here? It's offensive because it's disquieting about us. Because if you're honest, we see ourselves in them. We see ourselves in Nadab and Abihu, and rightly so. They fail to sanctify God before the people, to, to regard him, to treat him as holy, as infinitely, transcendently worth praise. And they died. But just in case we're thinking, okay, you know what? This is like very Old Testament. Jesus comes and changes everything. Let me remind you of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, the beginning of the church. Interesting, right at the beginning of the church, right at the beginning of the sacrificial system, something drastic happens. Ananias and Sapphira, 
go and sell a property, but keep back some of the things for themselves. And they come before the apostles, lay down the money in front of them and say, this is what we have sold. We're giving it to the Lord. And Peter says to Ananias and then eventually to Sapphira, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to man, but to God. And what happens to both of them? They drop dead on the spot, one after the other. It's almost, it's almost parallel. God is beginning something new with his church. The spirit of God who is now inhabiting the, the hearts and lives of men and women who've accepted Christ. And he said, this is what it means to have this Holy Spirit and do not lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead. Now I'm going to assume that you've lied sometime in the last, you know, month, week, whatever. You're here. So what's going on? It's, it's like the same thing. Clearly, is, is it arbitrary? You see, I think we want, a, we want a gracious God. We want a, we want a kind God. We want a forgiving God, a merciful God. We want a loving God. We want a guy, God who is for us, who's, who's moving towards our flourishing, period. Like, that's it. That, that's what we want. But what we don't want to think about is that he's a God who's gracious towards what? Who, who, who's kind towards what? Who's, who's forgiving of what? Who's loving in spite of what? Who's merciful in the face of what? Despite what? Well, despite the fact that he is really holy and we really are not. That he dwells in unapproachable light where, where there is no darkness at all and there is darkness in us. That he is absolutely pure and that we are and have been defiled by sin. That's the reality of it. That his forgiveness is great because our our need is great. What's uncomfortable and disquieting is that true justice, the right and fitting response of a holy God to those who have rejected him through sin is death. Like that's what matches not just physical death. Romans 6 says it's bigger than that. It's for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh yeah, there is unbelievably good news, but listen, there is no good news without the terrible news of the reality of what an unholy heart receives from a holy God without something intervening. And grace is cheap and empty unless we appropriate, unless we find ourselves looking into with regularity, with purpose, with consistency, the magnitude, the power, the unbelievable nature of the holiness, the glory, the purity of God. And to the degree that we see it, to the degree in which we appropriate it, to the degree in which we work through the offense of his holiness that he is God and that we are not, to that degree does grace have power and meaning and change.
Otherwise, it's just nice wishful thinking and it will never change us. The U.S. Constitution says that we have the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I see my life as a right. God sees my life as a gift. Those are not the same thing. He has given me this gift. He has given you this gift. And in light of his holiness and in light of the reality of our rebellion towards him, it is fitting, it would be fitting, it would be just and right for him to require your life and my life at any time. That's the reality of the holiness of God. That's the power of how far we are from him. That's how separate he is from us. Let that sink in. It won't crush you. This isn't the end. We got more to come. Let it sink in. He is that holy and it is offensive. We struggle in it. Fitting response to these passages, to, to seeing the reality of what could be or should be is to drop to your knees. It's not the wrong response. But a couple times now here, both in Exodus and in Leviticus, we're following the time of reading and starting to pray and really reflect on it. Like I just, I can't be in my chair anymore. Like I end up on the ground going like, how do you put up with me? If this is really who you are, how, how in the world? And I know, and, and, and all I can do is like with my face in the carpet say like, Jesus. Like that's what holiness does. It, it sends you to the ground on your face so then you can stand up in him. If we don't find ourselves face to face with the holiness of God, with a clear and regular vision and deepening sense of how overwhelming the nature of his glory is, we will make less and less of grace. We'll be less and less amazed by it, more expectant, more believing that, hey, I'm a good guy. Don't I kind of deserve it? At least more than. And then, our, and then our praise and our worship just ends up becoming like ritual. It becomes flat and lifeless. Saved from what, really? There is an offense, an offense to the holiness of God. He is God and we are not. But there's also the offense of his sovereignty. There's the offense of his holiness and there's the offense of his sovereignty. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10 in Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They didn't do what God said. They did things he didn't tell them to do. Commentators are all over the place as to what they actually did. Honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they didn't follow what God had called them to precisely. And that mattered. The disposition of their hearts or the, the flippancy of their actions, potato, potato. One of the amazing things, if you go back to, the, to Exodus chapter 40, that we didn't get to read this section, but, but God's given all the instructions for the tabernacle. Those of you who read Exodus, you know you got the instructions 
twice. So now you probably could build your own tabernacle in your backyard, right? Because you were memorizing at the time. But, but there, there's two instructions, right? And then you get to all the way to the end of Exodus, and, and there's the culminating moment where Moses builds the tabernacle, right? They put it all together. And, and, and Exodus 40 is this summary, and it's like, and then, and then Moses put together the, the basin and the utensils and all that stuff. And it says eight times in those 17 verses, as the Lord commanded Moses. Just almost like this, this little repetition that just keeps popping over and over in, verse, in chapter 40. That's not an accident. Do you know what that is? That's Moses saying, I'm going to receive from God precisely how he wants to be engaged with, precisely what his instructions, precisely the how of what it means to interact with him. I'm going to take those and I'm going to do exactly what he says. Because I'm going to believe him that what he said will make these things holy, will make them holy. It's just gold and sticks and stuff. But if he says they're holy, they are holy. And so I'm going to follow his instructions step by step by step by step. This is just not for like, you know, C-type temperaments, you know, one Enneagrams. It's not for just those people. This is like God has a purpose. He has a way in which he wants to interact with us. And we don't like it. There's an offense to his sovereignty. And he says, yeah, I'm God. And this is the way in which you relate to me. This is the how of what it means to follow me. We have beef with the how. I don't understand. Why this way? I'm sure if, you're, you know, if you've been reading and now you're in Leviticus, you're probably going like, really? Like scarlet yarn with the thing and the, like, does it matter? What if it was a blue piece of yarn, right? I mean, do you have, have you had those moments? I mean, like, we're, we're 21st century people. Like, I understand. We're not super familiar with, like, goats and stuff. But you've had those moments, right? Like, how can it matter? What, what, what's the big deal? Why does the how matter? There's this tedium in, in Leviticus, in Exodus and Leviticus, and then we begin in Deuteronomy. What's the tedium about? All these dietary laws, all these, all these very particular things and particular ways in which you like put blood on lobes and blood on toes and blood on thumbs and like, why does it matter? Like, what's the big deal about this? Why is God making so specific all of these things? How come he gets to say exactly how it is? It's as though, and think about it, like, remember the locust section? When he talks about like if a locust falls in your pot, like you have to break it. Like, I'm just imagining waking up in the morning, trying to make my cup of coffee, and like a locust is in my cup. I'm like, doggone it. You know, like what happened there? What happened with the law? What did it do? It invited me to have God on the mind in everything. You see, that's the thing that God was doing with his people. He was saying, there is nowhere you can go. There is nothing you can do where you don't have me on the mind. You're always thinking, my pure mind, pure, did I touch a dead thing? Okay, so what do I have to do now? What does that look like? See, we go, oh, this is a burden, right? This must have been such a burden. The long line of people, someone was talking about, man, what a long line of people with like animals about to die. Like it must have been forever. You're in line going like, I touched a dead thing, you know, like. But what's happening to a community of people? What's happening to the hearts of people? They're being invited to think of God rightly as holy and also rightly as being able to be connected with. You see, they got God on the mind all the time. There's nowhere you can go every Saturday. You're like, oh, I'm going to get up and go for a stick collection. Oh, no, no, Saturday. Can't, can't. God's on the mind. Not I can't, but like, oh, God's inviting me to something else. You see, that's the thing. He's inviting me to something else, not to restrict me from something. That's why we struggle with the sovereignty of God. He has a way in which he wants to relate to us. And we're like, we want to relate to him in light of what we think and how we want to do it. It shouldn't be this tedious. It shouldn't be this way. 
I don't like to read, so reading the Bible, like, I don't really think that that's, and God's saying, no, like, I meditate on my word. You know what it'll do? It'll change your heart. But how? Because I said so, it does it. The Spirit of God does it. This is how I've made people. So I'm inviting them to be changed. People of Israel saturated by the thoughts of God. And and let's be honest, the natural cultural narrative that we live in right now is that rules and laws are a hindrance. They're a hindrance to our freedom. They're a declaration that we're not really loved. If you really love me, you let me do what I want, right? That's that's, that's a pervasive cultural narrative. And so for God to be able to come in and through the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament, be able to look at you and be like, yeah, there's there's a sexual ethic that you have to live by. You want to be in communion with me? You want, to, you want me to be your God and you to be my people? There, there's, a sexual, there's, a, there's a professional ethic of how you're going to treat your employees and how you're going to handle your fields and how you're going to be generous to the poor. Like that's what it means to be in relationship with me. There's a, there's a response and a relationship to government that, that belongs in the, in the way of the Lord. That's not just any way, but it's a very particular way. God says, I have the way. We see that any restriction or command as a natural impediment to our personal fulfillment and flourishing and a proof that God's really just trying to control our lives. So I decide what's holy. I decide what I determine is clean. What makes me clean? I'll, I'll decide what makes me so. It's God's on, God on my terms, in my ways. What God's offering to us through his good laws is through his good commands, both Old and New Testament, is is actually a path to flourishing. No no one articulates this better than James K. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. This is an amazing quote, so you're going to want me to send it to you later. Listen to this. The commencement of the law, as the law begins reminds us that we inhabit not nature, but creation, fashioned by a creator. And that there is a certain grain to the universe, grooves and tracks and norms that are part of the fabric of the world. And all of creation flourishes best when our communities and relationships run with the grain of those grooves. Indeed. The biblical vision of human flourishing implicit in worship means that we are only properly free when our desires are rightly ordered, when they are bounded and directed to the end that constitutes our good. That is why the law, though though it comes as a scandalous challenge to the modern desire for autonomy, which we all feel, is actually, listen, this is what it actually is. The law is actually an invitation to be free from aimless wandering, from purposelessness. It is an invitation to find the good life by welcoming the boundaries of law that guide us into the grooves that constitute the very grain of the universe and are conducive to flourishing. You hear what he's saying? God's made grooves. And he says, if you go down these grooves, you're going to be congruent. You're going to live congruently with how I've created the pattern of the world. This is where flourishing happens. Not your grooves. Not your patterns, his grooves, his patterns. It's an invitation by him. Do you hear it? It's, it's not like, this is all you get. 
It's like, no, I, I know flourishing because this is not nature. This is creation. I am the Lord your God who created Genesis 1. And so I know how it works. Join my ways. Do you see the different way of looking at the law? It's no longer this thing that's in the way that I have to get around, that I have to put up with. It's a gift. It's a gift that tells me where and how to walk into flourishing with God and with each other. So why do we want this holy God? Why is it better to be the people of God? I mean, I don't know. If you're reading, you might be like, man, I might want to be a Canaanite. There's a lot of rules here. There's a lot of things. And it seems kind of dangerous, you know, like fires coming out. There's plagues and stuff that happen if you don't follow his ways. Maybe it's better to kind of just go your own way. So why is it better to be the people of God? Not only is, not only is the Christian worldview that God has laid out before both intellectually credible and, and experientially satisfying, but that's an entrusting God, just like James K. Smith was saying, that entrusting God as he is and the, his word that he has for us, we're drawn into that flourishing in him, with him. See, the thing that we miss is that it's in the grooves that God is meeting us. It's, it's mysterious, right? You would think you would know better for you, but you don't. God says, you don't. I know better for you, and I have this incredible gift for you. It's my sovereignty over your life. Will you, will you come and submit yourself to me? That's, you know, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. Is I, I, I go under. I don't always like it. I don't even always understand it, but I'm under. I am, I'm in submission to him because he made the grooves that are good for me. And fundamentally, if you go all the way to the bottom, I mean, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus yet or if you're kind of trying to figure out if Christianity is just bollocks or not, like, this is the offense of the sovereignty of God, right? The gospel itself is an offense because it's incredibly exclusive. This is what Jesus, Jesus says in John 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes but through me. Do you hear how offensive that is? How, how exclusive that is? That's God, that's God saying, hey, listen, I put some tracks. Here, here are the grooves of what it means to come to the Father, to find peace. This is the way. Not, not through every path leads to the mountain. No, no, it's, this is the way. Jesus is saying about himself, not someone saying it about him, him about himself, I am it. You want to get to the Father, you got to go through me. It's the only way, but it's the best way. Do you see? It's the best way. This is the exclusivity of God's sovereignty. And then there's the offense of grace because it's wildly inclusive. So we have the offense of holiness and we have the offense of God's sovereignty, but there's also an offense in grace, and that is that anybody gets to come because we said this before, but like justice is what you want for other people, right? Justice is always what we want for other people. Not what I don't want justice for me. I want justice for other people. But, but the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about grace is like it's unmerited, which means that like if you're an Israelite and the law has been given and Joe stole your goat, because we're talking about goats, he stole your goat and, and you find out and he makes restitution according to the law and then he takes a lamb and he sacrifices it, like, like Joe's good. Like Joe's good. Which means he's good with the holy God. Oh, wait, so, so what? You know, that means you have to be good with Joe now. So it means to forgive your enemies, right? So, 
So, so there is a way to return home. Like the, grace is offensive. Now, when you steal a goat, like you're really, really glad for grace. You throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord, right? Grace is offensive. One of the gifts of reading the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, I think, is God's invitation in it for us to, not for him to not only hold up his holiness and the, the reality of how unapproachable, even sometimes even frightening almost in his power and glory, and yet to, to come to realize that he draws near. Like he chooses to draw near. Did you, see, did you see the movement of what's happened? Like God's defended Israel as they've been traveling and then suddenly they get to Sinai and he goes up on the mountain, he appears on the mountain and there's fire and thunder and smoke and what do the people say? Uh, we would like to not touch the mountain. And God says, don't touch the mountain. And they say, we'd actually don't talk to us even. It's too much. And so the glory of the Lord is up there and, he, and Moses is in her, is, and he's with God and he's coming down with the law. And, and what does God do? Does he stay on the mountain? Does the presence of the Lord stay on the mountain? No. What does he do? What does he tell Moses to do? Build me a house in the middle of the people. I'm not staying on the mountain. I am coming down to be with my people. The presence of the glory of the Lord was in their midst. Now, there was a very particular way in which he laid that up. Back to sovereignty, right? Here's the kind of place it's going to be. And the Lord blesses it with his presence. You see, that's what happens, right, in, in chapter 40. This is the amen of God. You followed my ways. And what happened? Boom! The glory of the Lord appears in the middle of it to where no one can even get nearby. <laughs> Do you see how this is God's grace, his movement towards his people? The ones who can't touch the mountain because they'll die, begin to be able to move closer and closer to him. By the end of Leviticus, if you're an Israelite, a Hebrew, you know that you can be at peace with God. On the day of atonement, you can, you can watch the priest go in there and you may not have remembered half the sins and terrible stuff you did, but all you know is that it's covered. Somehow, by faith, you're going like, I believe that that's enough for me. And you know what God calls that? Righteousness. Same thing that was for Abraham. It's righteousness. Now, now you are well with me because you believed that what I called the sacrifice was your sacrifice. So it's well with you. Do, do you imagine that? This glorious, terrifying God saying, I'm going to come near enough and I'm going to make myself approachable to you, though I am holy and you are not. Do you see the movement of grace in it? That there was tabernacle in the middle so that God's presence could draw near and that God's people could have peace. Why does God want to be with us? Did you hear what I said? God wants to be with us. Like he wants to be with you. He, his entire move, the entire movement of the scriptures is God coming near us. Why? It's because he delights in giving who he is. The holiness of God is made to be experienced, to be known. The glory of the Lord is to, to be known by us. It's as though God is pouring himself out for us. So there's the wild inclusivity of the, 
of the offense of the inclusivity, which is, of course, what we hear from Jesus when he says, whoever believes in me will not perish. When Paul says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's the offense of holiness that, that we're so desperately unholy that in the gospel, Christ had to die. Like that's the offense of, of, of holiness. Like, it's that bad. It's that unovercomable that Christ had to die. And the offense of grace is that he chose to die. And not just for you, but for, for your enemy. You see, that's the beauty and the power of the gospel. It is offensive in both directions, but it unites them in Jesus. And so how do we, how do we approach this holy God? How? how? How can we? How does that work? What does it look like? Well, A.W. Tozer says it maybe in some of the most beautiful way in knowledge of the holy. He says, <clears throat> we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while God, while the glory of God passed by. Listen, we must Take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his son while he disciplines and chastens and purges us that we might be partakers of his holiness. You see, he's bringing it all together. He, he, we, there's no way. We have to hide ourselves in him. It has to be God meeting us so that God would be satisfied. It can't be you and it can't be me. But... In the, in the disciplining, in the chastening, in the purging of our unholiness, God is making us partakers and participants in his holiness, in his set-apartness. Isn't that amazing? Like God wants you that near that you look and smell and resemble him. And the reason, which is the reason why, in John chapter 1 it says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us tabernacled, literally the word tabernacled among us. Like Jesus is the good and better tabernacle, right? Like he is the presence of the Lord come to be with his people. Not in unapproachable light, but in flesh and blood. And not just to show up and talk about who God was, but to show who God was all the way to the cross. Because he's, he's the good and better priest. He's a way better Nadab and Abihu and Aaron. Hebrews talks about that a ton, but I won't go into that. But like bottom line is he's the good and and better priest who's, who's not just gone into the holy of holies to make sacrifice for an animal for your life. No, he put himself into the holy of holies and was slain for our unholiness, the holy for the unholy. That's, that's what happens. And so we are merged. You are made holy and are being made holy through the Holy Spirit, through his discipline, through his challenging of you, because he loves you and he wants to be with you. Loved ones, he wants to be with you and near you and for you to experience his presence and you to delight in his ways because that's where real life and flourishing is. Do you want that? There's a lot of substitutes out there, but that's what the invitation of the gospel is, is to move into that and to receive that and to be changed by him. Let us be those people 
We're forged by the way in which God invites us. His good law that points us to Jesus, that makes it indispensable that Jesus be here and that we become different people. And we encourage each other in the way. Let's pray.